Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join with our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name was Shipporah and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy... Kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. Well, whilst we were on holiday, we had a couple of um, mountaintop experiences. One occasion we went for a walk. And I hate to admit it, but we did get a little bit lost, having walked for far longer than we expected to. We eventually um, got to the point on the map where there should have been a nice little path back down to where we'd left the car. Um, Trouble was that path didn't exist, and it was just a sheer drop. So there's a choice between going back the many miles we had come already, or me setting off on my own uh, to find the car. I think you can probably guess which one was the solution. And not the sort of mountaintop experience that you might uh, like to think of, and certainly not the uh, kind of mountaintop experience we read of in the book of Exodus. Because here it was on the top of Mount Sinai, or Horeb, that uh, God revealed himself to Moses in the, the burning bush episode, when he commissioned him to be the one to go and release his people from slavery in Egypt. And it was on the top of the same mountain, that God later revealed his glory to the people of Israel. Later on in chapter 24, it says this. It says, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Well, I hope as we go through the series in Exodus that we're starting this evening that um, 
It won't be for you the sort of mountaintop experience that we had on holiday, but uh, that you will see God in all his glory and that you will come closer to him as a result. Before we do start, maybe useful just to give, a bit of, give you a bit of an overview of the book of uh, Exodus. Um, it can be divided into three main sections. The first 15 chapters describe the, the Exodus from, uh, from Egypt. And then the next, uh, from 16 to 24, we have the journey to Sinai and the laws that God gave his people on Mount Sinai, notably the Ten Commandments. And then uh, the chapters 25 to 40 contain the instructions for building the tabernacle. And we'll be covering all of this book in this series. We'll be stopping actually at the top of the mountain, a good place to, to stop. And there are various themes that we'll be coming across as we, as we go through it. There's the theme of redemption, the release of the people from slavery in Egypt, that release that prefigures our release from the slavery to sin that uh, Jesus Christ achieved for us. There's God's holiness, um, known, shown in that image of the fire, the consuming fire, the burning bush, the, the clouds surrounding Mount Sinai. And there's blood and sacrifice. There's the Passover lamb, of course, Jesus Christ being our Passover lamb. And there's both grace and law. God calling to him a people and giving them instructions to follow. But if you were to ask me, what, well, what do you think is the one overarching theme that uh, the book really uh, demonstrates? I'd probably say that it's the, the covenantal relationship between God and his people. Um, in chapter 2, we'll be looking at next week, in verse 24, it says, uh, God heard their groaning, the people of Israel, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So he looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God is holy, he's unapproachable, and yet he brings his people to himself. He accompanies them on their journey to Sinai. He looks after them, he reveals himself to them. And in the, I think a great summary verse, probably for me, for the book, um, if you look at chapter 19, actually it's probably going to appear on the screen behind me, um, this is what it says, a good verse to, to remember. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's that covenant relationship. God reveals himself in Exodus for the first time as, as Yahweh, the God of the covenant, uh, gives laws to Israel um, that serve to reveal his character as a holy God. And he gives instructions to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle is the, the symbolic place where God was present, um, which served for them before the building of the temple and before the coming in person of Jesus Christ to be with his people. Why study it? Why have a look at the book of Exodus? I know it's um, another book to look at, but um, uh, for some you may feel, well, it's just a historical book. It has really nothing to do with us today, all those plagues and stuff. Um, what's, what's that all about? And often we do prefer, don't we, sort of those uh, New Testament applications where we can go out and do something that makes us feel good and that we're obeying God. But actually Exodus is much more about almost uh, appreciating who God is appreciating his greatness, his glory, understanding his character, understanding what he's done for us, for his people. 
And that story of the release of the people of Israel from Egypt is not just a a, a chapter that um, has got nothing to do with us. It's a chapter in a book which carries on, um, a story which applies to us today, um, a chapter which leads to the completion of the story in Jesus Christ, of course. And as Christians who are in Christ, to better understand how God is present with us, we can do no better than to look back at how God was present with his people in, uh, in this part of the history of Israel. Well, that's enough of the, uh, the introduction. Uh, we're going to have a look at the first chapter briefly this, eve- this evening. Uh, and to be honest, it's quite a depressing start, isn't it? Um, you know, we've said the book is about God's presence, uh, his covenantal relationship with his people. And yet we read chapter one and we think, well, where is God? You know, it looks like having brought them to Egypt, he's now deserted them. He's just left them to be oppressed by foreign rulers. They're probably saying, well, what, what do we do to deserve this, uh, this oppression? And, of course, we still see Christians persecuted for their faith in many parts of the world today. So it is very relevant. And as we look at this first chapter, I think there are three things I'd like to bring out that I think it teaches us about oppression. And the first of those is that oppression is part of God's plan. Oppression is part of God's plan. Now, let me just clarify when I say that. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, God likes it. He doesn't enjoy seeing his people oppressed. But God has a much bigger vision than we can ever imagine. He can see the end from the beginning. And in that, that bigger plan of God that, that looks to redeem his people from a fallen world and to bring them into a new earth and a new heaven, he's in control of all that happens. And it's easy to to think when we read this, well, it looks like here the Israelites are being punished. Maybe it's their disobedience, maybe it's their their lack of faith. What have they done wrong to deserve this slavery, this oppression? Maybe they shouldn't have gone to Egypt. Maybe that was a mistake. The same way that in the book of Ruth, when Naomi's husband goes to to, um, to Moab with his family in search of, uh, of bread, he and his two sons end up dying. And you've got to ask yourself, was that the right thing to do? But here that is not the case. And to see that, let's just turn back a couple of chapters to to Genesis, to the end of Genesis, chapter 46. You might remember the uh, familiar story of Joseph becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man and inviting his family to come and stay with him in Egypt. And have a look there in verse 2 of chapter 46. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now that is pretty clear confirmation from God that this is the right course of action. There's no doubt here that it has God's blessing. He's calling them to go there. He will go with them. Now, that doesn't mean that everything would go well for them. As we heard from from Helen earlier, she knew that it was right to go to Tanzania. That didn't mean that everything would go smoothly for her, but she knew it was right. But also, the people of Israel, if they had remembered God's promise to Abraham, and for that we need to turn back a few more chapters to chapter 15 of Genesis, they would have known that this may have been the country where they would end up being enslaved 
and oppressed. Have a look at verse 13 of chapter 15. Then the Lord said to him, that's Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. We'll come back to that, that later. The people of Israel did end up being in Egypt for 400 years. But whether God was leading them to a future of slavery and oppression, it didn't actually matter because God had said to them, do not be afraid because I will be with you. Having recently returned from Romania, I thought it would be useful to understand a little bit more about the history of the church in, uh, in that country. And I borrowed this uh, book from the, uh, the church library. There's lots of interesting reading material in there if you'd like to take a look sometime. This is by Richard Wurmbrandt called In God's Underground. He was a, a pastor uh, who was in um, communist prisons for 14 years and he suffered the most terrible um, torture during that time. And um, in the book he describes a meeting of church leaders, about 4,000 church leaders, that he was invited to in 1945. And um, let me just read you some, some extracts from this because um, he says, Bishops, priests, pastors, rabbis, mullahs applauded as it was announced that Comrade Stalin, whose vast picture hung on the wall, was patron of the Congress. They preferred not to remember that he was at the same time president of the World Atheists' Organization. It says that one leader after another, Calvinist, Lutheran, and the chief rabbi rose and turned to speak. All expressed willingness to cooperate with the communists. My wife beside me could bear no more. She said, go and wash this shame from the face of Christ. If I do, you'll lose your husband, I replied. I don't need a coward. Go and do it, Sabina said, strong woman. That's what he says. I began with a brief word on communism. I said it was our duty as priests to glorify God and Christ, not transitory earthly powers, and to support his everlasting kingdom of love against the vanities of the day. And as I went on, priests who had sat for hours listening to flattering lies about the party seemed to awake us from a dream. Someone began to clap, the tension snapped, and applause suddenly broke out, wave after wave, with delegates standing up to cheer. The minister of cults, a former Orthodox priest called Budokia, who had been an active fascist and other times, shouted from the platform that my right to speak was withdrawn. I replied that I had the right from God and continued. In the end, the microphone was disconnected, but by then the hall was in such uproar that no one could hear anything. As he spoke out against communism, he knew that he would face persecution. and It wasn't long later that he was taken away and put in prison. And yet he did that knowing that God would be with him through that, throughout that persecution that he was likely to face. The Israelites didn't do anything to deserve to be enslaved. The only reason this happened was because of the fear of a new ruler in Egypt. Somebody was worried that one day maybe the Israelites would rise up against the Egyptians. And as is often the case with paranoid leaders in human history, um, the way he tried to control the Israelites was by enslaving them and oppressing them. And we're told there in verse 14, have a look down, that uh, he worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. 
and all their hard labour. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And they must have cried out to God, why God, why us, why are you allowing this to happen to us? Where are you? Now we may not have known persecution for our faith, but many of us will experience suffering. And many of us will know that, that feeling of um, absence of God, of abandonment. And how easy it is to make conclusions that uh, God's absence or presence depends on our circumstances. You know, in simplistic terms, if things are going well, God must be with us. If they're not, then he must be absent from us. And the question is, what do we do when we feel like that, when we feel God is not with us, when things are bad? And the psalmists here give us a good lesson. They, they often cry out, how long, O Lord? But what they don't do is think, well, obviously God doesn't care, so I'll just go off and do it my way. Or I'll just go off and sulk and ignore him. No, they plead with God. They, they engage with him. They call out for answers. And as they do, they're reminded that actually they have nothing to fear because God is there. And the thing with oppression is that it's not always bad. And interestingly enough, the oppression of the Israelites doesn't lead to the wiping out of the race. In fact, the opposite happens, which is my second point, that God can bring good out of oppression. Have a look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Now that, humanly, doesn't make sense, does it? You know, the reason humans oppress each other is to control each other. But you can't control God. God controls human leaders. And the most powerful thing about this book was the way that Wurmbrand and others experienced God's blessing in their persecution. And there's an amazing bit when he's released from prison after eight years for the first time. He goes back again later. Um, and he meets his wife uh, and she puts her arms around him. And this is, and this is what he says. Sorry, wrong page. Before we kiss, I must say something. Don't think I've simply come from misery to happiness. I've come from the joy of being with Christ in prison to the joy of being with him and my family. I'm not coming from strangers to my own, but from my own in prison to my own at home. And if you read about some of the persecution he suffers, then that is quite an amazing thing to say. The Hebrew midwives here experience that blessing in their own difficult situation. You know, they're commanded by the king of Egypt, if the Hebrew women give birth to boys, then kill them. However, given a choice between what the king of Egypt tells them to do and what the king of kings tells them to do, they follow God. They fear God. They fear him more than man. And it's quite an interesting case study, this one, isn't it, for uh, the question of is it ever right to lie? Because they do come up with a bit of a long story here, don't they? It doesn't seem particularly convincing. But if you, if you think about why are we commanded not to lie in the, in the Ten Commandments, it's to... Because normally we lie to protect ourselves, don't we? We normally lie to cover up our mistakes. We normally lie to appear good to other people. But they're not doing that here. They're not protecting themselves. They're protecting these unborn children. They're putting their own lives at risk by doing this. And so God rewards their faithfulness. Look at verse 20. God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. 
And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Christians down the ages have always suffered persecution. On holiday we visited the Colosseum in Rome, a place where many Christians met their death. And yet despite the martyrdom of those apostles and the the, the early Christians, um, the early church grew throughout the Roman Empire. In the UK, in the 16th century, reformers like Tyndale and, and Wycliffe were persecuted for their faith. Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. And yet the church grew. And the most amazing grace story of the uh, late 20th, early 21st century is how the church in China has grown despite attempts to control it and repress it. And yet on the other side, countries where there is material prosperity, countries like our own, the church is in decline. Why, Jesus? Why is that the case? Well, a willingness to suffer for our faith is a real test, isn't it? It's testing the genuineness of our faith. If you're prepared to suffer for something, then it must be pretty important to you. You don't find half-hearted Christians in communist prisons. An example of Christians who are prepared to go to prison in turn strengthens the faith of those who are not in prison, who are continuing the work. Peter said, I will never deny you, Lord. I will never let you down. And then the first time he was tested, he did just that. But he knew he had done wrong and he was full of remorse and that testing actually strengthened him in his faith. And he didn't deny Jesus again as far as we know. But how does that affect us then as Christians in the comfortable West? Well, I think um, it's a lesson, first of all, on how we should pray. You know, it's very tempting, isn't it, just to pray for, a, uh, for good health, for a, an easy, comfortable life, that everything would go well with us. But actually what God wants most is that we become more like Jesus. And if that involves suffering, then we shouldn't shy away from it. And we also need to be careful, though, that when we do see somebody struggling in their faith, somebody going through tough times, um, that we're not judgmental on them. It's not a question of looking down at people who are, who are suffering and um, turning away from God and criticising them for somehow having a weak faith. We need to pray for them, that, uh, that they would know God's grace, they would know his strength, and that uh, he would enable them to, to stand firm, to continue to trust him during that. Let's pray that they would come through the suffering, that their faith will be stronger as a result. God can bring good out of oppression and finally God promises deliverance from oppression. When we're in the middle of uh, suffering, the obvious question is, well, how long is this going to go on? And the reason it's so important to study Old Testament books like Exodus is that it assures us of what will happen to us in the future, that uh, There is a promise of deliverance as we look back at what God has said, what he has done, and as he has completed his promises. We know that the people of Israel would be released when we read this story. They didn't know that at the time, though, did they? And they didn't have much to to look back on at that stage in the, uh, the history of God's people. But there was a promise, though, that they did know. Let's go back to that um, verse from chapter 15 of Genesis. Chapter 15, verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But 
I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This promise not only helps them understand that this was meant to happen, that it was part of God's plan, it also tells them that it won't go on forever that they need to be patient. They need to wait for the time when it will come to an end. Now, when we look back at the Old Testament, there are times when God intervenes immediately to deliver his people. Later on in Exodus, we will see how he intervened to provide food and water. We'll see how he intervened to defeat the Amalekites when they attacked his people. At other times, greater patience is required. People were in exile in Babylon for 50 years before they were allowed out. It's 50 years this year since the building of the the Berlin Wall and the people in East Germany had to wait 28 years before they could be free to go back to the West. And Revelation 6 tells us that there will always be Christians crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? And what is the answer they get? They're told to wait a little longer. Wait a little longer until one day Christ will come again. He will deliver us. He will take us to be in a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning, no more oppression. We know the outcome is assured in Christ. We know he's achieved the victory over sin and death. He's faithful. He doesn't change. And we are at a privileged point in history. We, we can look back and see how the people of uh, God will rescue from Egypt. We can see how the story is completed in Jesus as his death on the cross released us from slavery to sin. And the promise of a final deliverance should be hugely reassuring to us, particularly if you are crying out for relief yourself from from suffering. But there is a danger that we only think of that promise of deliverance only in terms of how it applies to us individually. And if things are going actually quite well for us, then there's a temptation to think, well, actually, I'm okay now and I will be even better in the future when I go to be with my Lord. Therefore, actually, I don't really need to worry. This promise of deliverance is a corporate promise to the universal church. And we need to open our eyes to our brothers and sisters in countries where they are being persecuted right now and pray for them. If you need more information on them, there are various organisations that do give you that. There's uh, Barnabas, the Barnabas Fund. There's Open Doors. Uh, there's Release International. Uh, read the pages of uh, EN, Evangelicals Now, and you'll read of those uh, churches who, who are being oppressed. But we also need to pray for those who are not Christians, but who are being oppressed in many different ways. Those who are being subjected to abuse in the home. Those where parents are absent and uh, they're actually being more under the influence of gang leaders, of, of drug dealers. Pray for those girls caught up in prostitution, those who've been victims of human trafficking. The list is endless of people who are being oppressed today. And God's promises for each of these is that there is deliverance in Jesus Christ. And sadly, they don't know him. But let's pray that they will be released from their impression. And let's pray that they will know the promise of Jesus for themselves, that they will know that he gave his life 
for them. And as we celebrate the sacrifice that he gave for us now, help us not just to think of what that means to us individually, but help us to think of the world to which he came.